Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation on the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. Wait, I have to protest. All right. You just said the word again, casual conversation. And we are meeting in the studio today because we decided we weren't really allowed to have a casual conversation because we were going to meet on my deck, which we nicknamed the Oasis. And Mike said, but you have to bring your computer and we have to focus if we're on the deck because the deck is my little... Uh, get away. And so Mike said, if we're going to be too casual, we can't meet on your deck. So we are here having a not so casual conversation today. I just need to clarify. All right. But we got (laughs) to, our goal is to uh, hopefully bring the things of eternity and um, and just get us focused on this wonderful plan. I just turned 50 years old this past week and was meditating and thinking on uh, some crazy things. What a ride it's been for 50 years. But I think the craziest thing that has come to my knowledge is the fact that when you look into the expanse of space and and this world and how everything works together, that that there is a creator that did this. And and then he came down and took on flesh so that we would know how to relate to him and that he would be so personable to us. You know, he wasn't one of these Greek gods or all of these statues or, or superstitious beliefs, he let us know how to relate to him and who he was. And that just blows my mind. And I was thinking, we think about Jesus coming back, and I have I think I've transposed that thought as well when I didn't realize so strongly that Jesus is God. Our God, the creator of the universe, is coming back to stand on this earth again. Mm-hmm. And what a day that's going to be. Mm-hmm. I am. So, you know, I was just with the interns this week and I really enjoyed that time that that room of uh, young adults between the age of 19 and 24 at the Book of Mormon Foundation. It's it's wonderful. It's life changing for them. And that's their own words. But I was touched by uh, talking to each one and the various testimonies. But just one, what you just said was from a, a young woman who opened up to third Nephi five and she reads the words that say, you know, Jesus stood among the people and he said, come and thrust your hands in my side and, and feet and feel the prints of the nails in my hands and know that I am God, the God of the whole earth. And she, she says, I just read those words and I just have this knowledge that Jesus stood on this continent, on this land and said those words, you know, that, and he is going to come back and do that again. Mm-hmm. Just what you just said. Yeah. Uh, they had nice looking shirts, by the way. That picture you took. <laughs> I'll get you were, one. <laughs> those were really nice looking. Yeah. So last night, Corey, I was uh, listening to a podcast, trying to fall asleep. And uh, <laughs> there's one I listened to about wrongful convictions. We talk about injustice and the injustice that Jesus, you know, faced the greatest injustice that the creation would kill the creator um, when he came down to just love on them and to show them the best way. And um, when I listen to this wrongful conviction podcast, there's so much injustices. And this, these are all people that have spent years, decades sometimes in prison and are finally freed. Mm. Um, and, and a lot of times it's through the uh, malicious 
actions of the prosecutors and and the courts and things just to get a conviction mm-hmm. uh, and and under you know and they don't have any um, recourse and actually this prosecutor here was I think the first one to ever go to prison for what he did but this guy's testimony this guy was not a Christian and I was blown away last night when I heard what he said um, he was in prison and his son was getting old enough and his son came and said I'm not going to visit you here anymore. He was being raised by uh, his wife's family, who he was convicted of murdering, and he he didn't do it. Um, and so this is him post that. He was kind of in a fog and realized, because his good friend in prison said, if you don't have hope, you end up, that's the people that kill themselves and take their life when there's no hope, nothing to look forward to. And this this was the one thing he had to look forward to was this relationship with his son, and that was kind of ripped away. And so we're going to join that story just for a couple of minutes because I think you'll be surprised at what what transpired in this man's life. It's amazing. Now you your hope is gone, but you didn't take the, let's call it the easy way out. What did what, what happened? Well, I did something that was very uncharacteristic for me at the time. Um, I was completely emotionally, utterly just empty, gutted, wounded, and I didn't know what to do or where to go or which way to turn. And the uncharacteristic thing that I did is I, I cried out to God, you know, help, show me something. I got nothing here. Right, but you weren't a religious guy at the time. No, no, no. And um, I, I got nothing. You know, I, I didn't hear this voice from above, you know. Michael, it's going to rain, build a boat. It was absolutely nothing. And you know what? In all candor, that not getting a response was sort of what I expected because things had been going so badly for so long. Right. Why would this be any different? Yeah, why is it going to change in a a heartbeat like this? You know, just because I'm suffering, boo-hoo. And then about a week or so later, completely normal day, Nothing special. Work, gym, eat, sleep. Um, it's late at night. It's my usual bedtime. <sighs> my cell partner's on the bottom bunk. He's already asleep. Um, I decided to kill the light and turn on the radio, go up and down the dial a few times, and call it a night. With your headphones on? It, with my, yes, with my headphones on. That was, that was my routine. I had done this thousands of nights before this. This was just what you do in the penitentiary. And every indicator, appellate and otherwise, is... I was going to be doing this for thousands of more nights. This was my life. And so I did this. At the time, I was in a penitentiary a little south of Houston, and I picked up a, uh, a classical station out of Houston, and there's a, what sounded to me like a, a lady playing a harp. You know, it <laughs> might have been a guy, but in my mind, I'm listening to this lady playing a harp. And I don't know about you, but you don't hear too much harp music on t- uh, on the radio. It just... T- t- <laughs> Or, or, or in prison. <laughs> Especially in prison. And so I listened to him for a moment because that's something of a novelty. And now it's comically apropos. But after listening to that for just a moment, with no warning whatsoever, just boom like that, I found myself bathed in golden light. Inexplicable, wonderful beautiful, reassuring golden light. And I I could see nothing but this golden light. And I heard this roaring in my ears, and I felt wonderful. I I don't know if I was, but I felt like I might have been floating on my bunk. I don't know. Just this wonderful, fantastic, beautiful sensation. And I was sure, without having having it explained to me, it was self-evident that I was in the presence of God. And, And I felt 
this reassurance and this undeniable, limitless focus of love aimed right at me. And it was profound and wonderful and, and reassuring and a fantastic. And it changed everything about me and my perspective and my life. And then I heard my alarm going off. And I reflexively just turned it off like I did every morning. And I sat up in my bunk. And I thought, whoa, I, I, I'm not accustomed to supernatural experiences. I don't have a psych history. I don't, you know, all the stuff. And I'm going, I knew what that was. But like all profound things in your life, I think why is probably the most important question you can ask. And I didn't have a clue. I thought, why did this happen to me? Here I am, some guy just sitting in the penitentiary. And I spent probably months chewing on this, thinking, reading, talking to people, even a little praying about, you know, what's going on here. And the simplest thing is what you might call Occam's razor, that philosophical notion that the simplest explanation, until proven wrong, is probably the best and it hit me that the only thing that had happened is I had asked, you know, help. God, please show me something. I got nothing here. You literally had nothing. I had not, yo, nowhere to go. And he said, okay, look. And I knew this is real because it changed me inside. This wasn't some sort of, you know, intellectual conclusion I reached after a search, so, you know, some kind of investigation. This, this is something that happened to me. And the reason I know that it's real and almost irrational but genuine is that I'm different. After this happened to me, I wanted different things and I disliked other things. In fact, my life did a 180. The things that I had hated, now I was loving them. The things that I had loved, now I was hating them. And the, the whole, the, the, the good, bad, the, the right and wrong dynamic there, the, the conundrum we all wrestle with, was suddenly plain to me. It made sense. What does that sound like? Yeah, no kidding. The change of heart, like Alma says. And, yeah. And this guy didn't even know God, but... He said he felt that great love for him, and all of a sudden things that he wanted he didn't want anymore, and mm -hmm. things he didn't want he wanted. You know, that's the thing to pray for, for people. We all got them in our lives and our family who, you know, you, you <laughs> we sometimes, I think, use the wrong phrase. We'd like, well, we want them to get baptized. We want them to join the church, and all that, you know, has its place, but... But for some, it, it has to start with that change of heart. You, you got to pray for the people that they'll want the things of God and not want the things of the world. And then when that happens, everything else can fall in place. Yeah, I, I was blown away last night, Lane. I did not expect that because this is not a religious podcast. Uh -huh. I don't know that I've ever so, – some people, yeah, just not a religious podcast. That's not its goal. But this guy's testimony just came out. And, and so why is that important when we – we're doing part three of Zion today. Why is that important? Because as you just said, Corey, um, Zion or what we use, I th we'll talk about the language and, and what we what meaning we imply to that. But the number one goal, the number one thing to keep in our mind always is that relationship with God, his great love for us and the need for us 
to change. And, and just like this guy said, you know, it sounds to me like he had a born again conversion experience, kind of like in the book of Mormon where they didn't really even know what it was, but they, their hearts were changed first. And, you know, he wasn't baptized or anything, but he said, those things I used to want to do. I, he said, how do I know I was changed? That the things I used to want to do, I didn't want. And, and the things I didn't want, now I wanted. And this is a guy who is having his first experience with God, and what a wonderful thing to be bathed in light and to feel love. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what each one of us, that's the story of the restoration. That's the story of the church from the beginning times with Adam and Enoch. Uh, that's the story. The story is to to want to do what God wants and to, to hate the things that God hates and to just mm-hmm. want him and to know his love. And that's the story that that we should be teaching the world. Mm. And Zion is um, can't can't subsidize that can't substitute that the story of Zion in and uh, a holy city and independence. That's always the secondary thing that comes from meeting Jesus. So Anyway, I wanted to just share that this morning. Whenever I hear testimonies of, that's a modern day, to me sounds like a modern day experience with all of this guy that just lost all of his hope and now his hope is restored and it's just from knowing God and that love he felt. Well, yeah, that is the underlying principle. And and it's beautiful that the Book of Mormon teaches that so clearly. Um you know, we sometimes substitute the other things that we think are important, but it's ultimately the change of heart, which has to be the foundation of of everything that makes us want want the kingdom. Right. Yeah. Well, we've talked a couple of weeks about Zion in, in a number of different ways. Today, I wanted to go over just a little bit of like, where did this word come from and what was the concept? Because as we've talked about many times it's not so much the word but it's the meaning we attribute to the word mm. you know, we we can have a word today and think it means one thing and the you know the word that it was a while ago meant something completely different so what when we talk about zion today uh, we we have to actually talk about what are we what are we talking about what are we thinking about what what's the concept in our culture and how what was the maybe the concept when that f- word was first used and first appears on the landscape in Scripture? Uh, and doing some research this week, the word Zion wasn't even quite possibly, quite probably wasn't a Hebrew word. It existed before the Hebrews. Uh, and actually, David captured a city, and Zion was the name of a hill, the easternmost hill, where these two hills were, and eventually where uh, Jerusalem was built. Right. And sometimes they called it the Mountain Zion or the Mount Zion. Um, but it, it was referring to a city, and David captured this place from the Jebusites, and apparently, probably, uh, they took on that name and then kind of changed it to a Hebrew word, which was which was Zion, spelled with like a T Z I O N. Right. Um, but this is fascinating that when you translate that, it means uh, an indication or a marking. 
And the way the rabbis taught was that the Messiah would come and would claim his people as as his ownership. They were marked. That 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 was a marking or a to know that they belong to the Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, I was looking this up recently as well, just coincidentally, and uh, maybe like 30 seconds ago even. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting because, yeah, I'd, I'd heard that it was this hill and like the city of David, you know, it's part of Jerusalem. But um, it was actually the highest point. I didn't know that. And so it was like you could see it from all around. You know, we get this uh, reference to a city on a hill. Mm-hmm. Well, that Zion, the word Zion literally uh, meant highest point. And so, you know, that's it's got physical and, and spiritual uh, significance. There's a, this was fascinating. And I read that it said that in Jewish law, it states that if someone finds an object and that object has identifiable markings, um, the original owner can present those identifiers and the person has to return the object. So it's not like finders keepers. Mm. It's, and so in a similar matter, they said the Jewish people were like this lost object and they are set aside as Zion or unique, which mm-hmm. I've, I've heard before that, um, that word peculiar, we use it in a, in a bad way. And we think we're funny when, Oh, we're mm-hmm. supposed to be peculiar, like odd and, and not, it means to be owned. It's, So it says, for this reason, when the Messiah comes, God, as the owner of this lost object, will be able to reclaim the Jewish people from the nations. And that's what that concept of a marking or identifier. Mm. Mm. So it's word history is great because there's there's a lot of different ideas through it, but it was clearly in the scriptures a place. Yeah, and it became synonymous with the city city of Jerusalem. Of David, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in Jerusalem and Mm -hmm. Zion, you read in the Old Testament where they kind of use them interchangeably. And and there might be significance to it, but like, uh, oh, just, you know, I don't know if I can just put my, like in 2 Kings 19, for out of Zion, I'm sorry, let me restart. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord shall do this. That's a parallelism using Jerusalem and Zion kind of as, as the same thing. But, mm-hmm. So so to the old, to the part of it too was this idea that most of the nations of Israel, the 12 tribes were scattered to the world and, you know, coming back to Zion meant gathering back to Jerusalem in a sense, in, in a physical sense. The uh, Another interesting fact is that Zion's used like 152 times in the Old Testament referring to the title of Jerusalem, what you just said, and half of those references are in Psalms and Isaiah. Yeah, yeah, right. So we get a lot of that in the Book of Mormon is some quotes from um, Isaiah. What uh, what I wanted to talk about was the restoration and the um, implication or the meaning we've attached to the word Zion mm-hmm. as opposed to the prophecies in the Book of Mormon that talk about Zion and the New Jerusalem. Hmm. And in doing that, I also wanted to tie in the Doctrine and Covenants because that's the historical uh, record that we have of the Restoration since 1830 and see how Zion was first used in the Restoration and then how um, that meaning maybe changed or was added to as this concept of what it was is what we're talking about, if we just put words aside, we're talking about 
um, a place here on the earth, and we believe not in the rapture or not that we're all going to be taken away, but that we believe Jesus Christ is going to return and that there's going to be a holy city here on the earth and also a holy city across the water in Jerusalem. And we call that Zion. And I think our culture has kind of taken on the idea that we're going to build, we're going to build Zion. And I want to, I want to look at what that actually means if we've ever thought like hammer and nails and physical structures, uh, spiritual. That's another word too, but we talk about it a lot, right? Build Zion. So I think we leave it all out there and we ever, never really define it. We just have it as a dream, you know, but mm-hmm. yeah, no, I, I like where you're going. So in looking at the first time the word Zion is used in the Doctrine and Covenants, um, one of the first things is actually maybe not <laughs> fair because it's quoting old, old times, and that's section 36 where we see this man, Enoch, who's referenced in the Bible and is referenced in other biblical writings, but we get a clear picture of what this man was and what happened to him, and that's become part of our Bible. We've added that in where it fits in Genesis. But I wanted to read through this and and maybe just stop at some points and then intersperse some of what the Book of Mormon says in here, and then at the end maybe talk more about what the Book of Mormon says, whether we get through today or, or we we do this in another part. So that's what I was thinking. So uh, 1830, June 1830, it says Joseph began an inspired correction of the Scriptures uh, due to revel that the Lord told him to do this. And this is like Genesis 7 in the inspired version. So let's read through this and stop from, from place to place and talk about some of these things that we see because I think there's an interesting pattern here. And I don't know, Corey, but I wonder if this pattern doesn't fit into what will happen in the last days again, if the Lord would kind of act in the same way or in some of the same ways. But it says, Enoch continued his speech saying, Our father Adam taught these things. And many have believed and become the sons of God. This is one of the most interesting things, I think, for our culture, for our church, for our religion, is that we believe Adam knew a lot about the gospel of Jesus Christ from the beginning. He was baptized. Um, he knew about the Holy Spirit. Uh, he knew about repentance and the blood being shed right from the very beginning. And I don't know if other churches have that idea. Do you? I know we've got specific scripture that points to his understanding. And like you pointed out, his baptism. I think other churches, uh, if they analyze from the King James Version deep enough, they get the symbols uh, mainly from this. They draw conclusions, for instance, just the simple fact that in everyone's Bible it talks about when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, God clothed them with skins of animals. And that's very symbolic in that the animals had to be killed and then they were covered you know, to hide their nakedness. There's a spiritual parallel that there had to be a sacrifice and then God would God literally covered them with the clothes of animals, you know, physically. Mm-hmm. Like he would clothe them also with this atonement. And so 
while there's no record in the other Bibles of like the conversation we get in, in the inspired version about Adam being baptized and understanding these things and directly hearing about Jesus Christ, um, you can imply it from the King James that he, that he must have had to understand about the sacrifice. Now, that aside, if you look at books of the Bible that are not included in today's canon of Scripture, and you know we think the Bible is static, but over generations there has been an ebb of, and flow of what books have been in it and what books have not been in it. And there are many records, um, even going back in times B.C., there's a, an account of Adam and Eve that was held in Egypt, didn't stay in our canon of Scripture, but it explicitly talks about God telling Adam that uh, he would die for their sins. And it's this is something, this is in this book, um, <laughs> The Lost Book of Eden mm. um, and, and Books of the Bible. And I've referenced this, I think, in times mm-hmm. past. But there are, it even gives times, it says, uh, you know, uh, 5,500 years from now, like there, there's these time frames, but it specifically says, like, for instance, we get the account not to take too much time on this, but it's worth it since you brought it up. We get the account in the inspired version, Genesis 4, of Adam offering sacrifices, and the angel says, hey, do you know why you're doing this? Adam's response, no. And the angel says, in clear terms, this is in similitude of the sacrifice of the only begotten. And so we understand from that the that Adam's learning process was, okay, I'm sacrificing these animals as a lesson or as a type or a metaphor for the greater sacrifice of God. Well, in the lost books of the Bible, Adam and Eve account, you can read right there where it's a it's a different time and place, but maybe the same idea is there. Adam, in this account, now this isn't in the Bible, but it, it had been, I guess, at one point, Adam sees his own blood, and and then God tells him, just like you've seen your blood shed, my blood will be shed for you so you can come back to be with me. And this comes in a, <clears throat> there's a, there's a lengthy story where Adam is doing anything he can. He's trying to apologize and he's trying to fast 40 days and different things so that he can say he's sorry enough to show enough remorse to come back into God's presence. And he said, this can, this can't happen by your own merit. And this is a, this is another whole story in itself that I have to become a sacrifice. There has to be a payment made in order to pay for the sin. You can't do enough. You can't fast enough. You can't say you're sorry enough. And that's the plight of man. And I think that's such a profound, beautiful example. And this was written in times BC. You know? yeah. It wasn't like a New Testament construct. Some, someone added this in after they figured out the New Testament. I wonder if people in our own church, and in, in, in we hear about like, you just hear that phrase, the lost books of the Bible, or you see things on TV and stuff. If, if in our mind we automatically set that kind of stuff down a few notches, like, well, okay, but it's not the Bible, so I'll right. take it with a grain right. of salt. Whereas if anybody uh, should be open to these kind of things, you think it would be our people, as we've tried to show that the Book of Mormon is more records. And and here, you know, you look at Joseph Smith writing this um this Genesis account, and then now you see that there's other accounts that corroborate, you know, what he is, what he has uh, put into Genesis through the Spirit of the Lord. That's pretty amazing. And so, uh, well, what you just said, I got to jump on that for a second, Mike, because in Second Nephi eleven, it says exactly this. Uh, Nephi is writing in prophecy, and he says, you know, 
I'm going to speak to your people, Nephi, and, and, and God saying this, and they're going to write it. I'm going to speak to the Jews, and they're going to write it. And then he says in, in 2 Nephi 12, and I shall also speak unto all the nations of the earth, and they shall write it. They shall write it. And that's in our book. I mean, so it's kind of like, yeah, like you just said, yeah. someone should be open to it, maybe us. Well, and if we <clears> thought <throat> that the Bible, that the Bible contained and was a perfect uh consolidation of everything God had given that we need to know about him, then he wouldn't have needed to have the Book of Mormon. So we have yeah. to understand that the Bible is imperfect by its very nature. Uh, the reason for God to, as he says in the Book of Mormon, that plain and precious things would be removed and that um, you know, it would be restored so that we, we quit stumbling because of the things that were left out. So we know that. But we also know, like, how in the world did Lehi... And these ancient writers of the Book of Mormon, how do they know all about Jesus and baptism and all of these things of the, the whole story of salvation if it wasn't recorded by Adam and that they didn't have it in their plates? They said, we're not going to write it all again. We have it. So they they had to have had a more complete picture or they wouldn't have been teaching about baptism and atonement and all of those things. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so here Enoch says... Uh, um, Adam taught these things, and many have believed and become the sons of God. That's, so this is way from the beginning. And many have believed not and perished in their sins and are looking forth with fear and torment for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God to be poured out upon them. And from that time forth, Enoch began to prophesy, saying, uh, I cried unto the Lord, and there came a voice out of heaven, saying, Turn ye and get up to the Mount Simeon. And it came to pass that I turned and went up to the mount, and as I stood upon the mount, I beheld the heavens open, and I was clothed upon with glory, and I saw the Lord. So I think we've talked enough to know that when he says, I saw the Lord, we're talking about him seeing Jesus. Yes. He stood before my face, and he talked with me, even as a man talks with another, face to face, and said, Look, I will show unto you the world for many generations. And so he goes on, he sees these people and uh, the people of Canaan and the people of Shem, and they go forth in battles, and they're utterly going to be destroyed, and they divide themselves in the land, and the Lord curses the land, and he curses the people. And then we come down to here, and he said, Go to the people and say unto them, Repent, lest I come out and smite them with a curse, and they die. And here we go. He gave unto me a commandment that I should baptize in the name of the Father and the Son, which is full of grace and truth, and the Holy Spirit, which bears record of the Father and the Son. I saw a close a person close to our family posted a comment this week and asked a question, why do we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost if Jesus told Peter that he holds the keys to the kingdom and whatever he binds is bound and that he told him to baptize in his name. <laughs> Have you ever heard that argument before? No. <laughs> to me, it's just like just That's one little incomplete. Stand. There's so so much more fullness that tells us. But if, yeah. if you take one scripture and cut it off there and said nothing more, nothing else, then you're in, you are in that pickle. It, it, yeah, and it's like you know people just make. Sometimes they do it to you know just incite an argument, but sometimes they take pot shots because they don't understand. But that's one of those things where the Bible already tells us avoid foolish arguments. You know, just that that to me is one that I wouldn't even respond to. It says Enoch 
continued to call upon all the people, and so great was the faith of Enoch that he led the people of God to battle, spoke the word of the Lord, and this is, I can't even imagine, this is one of the most amazing things I remember from my childhood, that you speak the word of the Lord, and it says, the earth trembled, the mountains fled, even according to his command, and the rivers of water were turned out of their course, and the roar of lions was heard out of the wilderness, and all nations feared greatly. So powerful was the word of Enoch, and so great was the power of language which God had given him. Yeah, that's a significant one because I, I like this contrast when God's power rests on someone, and I know that, that those words don't do it justice, but um, Enoch when we look at his own words, he said, why have you chosen me? You know, this is where he calls himself a lad being 65, but, and we snicker at that, but that's only because Adam and, and the patriarchs before him were all alive, several hundred years old. So he's like, why are you choosing me? I'm just a kid compared to these. But his follow-up to that is I'm slow of speech and the people hate me, you know? And so what you just read was the, the change just like Isaiah where he's like, Hey, um, I'm a person of unclean lips come from a land of people the same. And then God purges his, you know, coal to his mouth. Mm -hmm. Hey, let me fix this for you. And then he, he writes the most beautiful scripture. Well, when you just talked about Enoch and the power of language was so strong, this was the guy who stuttered and people hated him. You know, it was like the goofball. They didn't want to listen to him. And then God makes this change and now he can speak and the mountains disappear, you know? That's that's what that's the change of heart, right? That, that yeah. that's the ultimate amplification of it, right? When you're changed, God can do mighty things through you. Well, here's a little crazy <laughs> sentence here in two D. There there came up a land out of the depth of the sea, and so great was the fear of the enemies of the people of God that they fled and stood afar off and went upon the land which came up out of the depths of the sea. And the giants of the land also stood afar off, and there went forth a curse upon all the people which fought against God. And from that, and this is this is the scripture right here that I was talking about, a pattern, 2F. From that time forth there were wars and bloodsheds among them, but the Lord came and dwelt with his people, and they dwelt in righteousness. Oh, it's something that, I haven't heard mentioned very much, but it says right there that the Lord came and dwelt with his people. That would be Jesus. Yeah. Here on the earth mm -hmm. with his people as they were righteous. And the fear of the Lord was upon all nations. So great was the glory of the Lord, which was upon his people. You know, here, here's one other aspect, and, and it's coming up in the next couple of verses. Well, before I say it, this you, you should keep going because you're on a roll. Well, the Lord called his people Zion, and I'm I'm reading mostly word for word, but there's I'm not going to go through everything word for word, but the Lord called his people Zion. They were of one heart, one mind, and dwelt in righteousness. We quote that a lot. There were no poor among them, and Enoch continued his preaching in righteousness unto the people of God. And so here's, here's the thing that just jumped out at me as you were reading this in 2H and 2I. The people had righteousness among them first and then 3a says and it came to pass in his days that he built a city that was called the city of holiness even zion 
the, the people's hearts were of one heart and one mind. Jesus was in their midst, and, and then a city was built. Right. See, and here's the pattern that maybe to start with our list of things that we need to rethink in the last days now of the restoration. Yes, amen. This is a good point. It is that the the change of heart has to happen first and then a city is built this is what the book of mormon pattern is that we're we're going to i know we're going to move in that direction here in our conversation but that the the remnant of joseph these people who were the the lamanites who were cast off and discarded and hated and scourged and considered you know just occupying land that could be used for some other purpose because they weren't doing anything good with it this is the promise to them that they become blessed with God's power. His spirit moves upon them. They become spiritually more powerful than the, than the Gentiles to whom the gospel was restored. And then a city is built. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, so yeah. Three a says, just picking up where you said that it came to pass in his days that he built a city that was called the city of holiness, even Zion. So that word built, uh, let's think for a minute, Corey. What does the nuts and bolts look like if Jesus isn't here? We have to dwell in righteousness and be of one heart and one mind. Picture a group of people building a city right now without Jesus being yeah. here. Yeah, and, is that re- <laughs> is that really still our hope that we're going to somehow some Sunday? wake up and I don't know, someone prophesies and all of our hearts change and we put together Zionic businesses and we buy all the land. And I, I, I just, I want our hope to be real hope and pure hope that allows us no fear, gives us direction and allows our hearts to be free to, to love one another without, when you try to do things in your own strength, that's where the the pride and the jealousy and the uh, conflict comes, and my way's better, no, your way's better. And it's just a cycle that perpetuates and is never going to be fixed. And I don't see how any oneness will ever come without the presence of Christ. Exactly. And it's, and, and the word I was going to add to the list, you just is division. You know, you look at, I don't know, in time, in the short time since the 1830s, a church who's had more division than. Then the restoration, which was supposed to, you know, have the fullness and be able to put an end to all this stuff. It's like hundreds, you know, and, and to just pick on recent groups, you know, people dividing off the church and then restoration groups, then restoration groups dividing. And it's like, usually the people who divide have a righteous reason that has something that, well, you guys aren't doing something, but we are, or we're called to build Zion or God separating us out. And it's like, None of these things, if, if our heart is always on division, you know, we somehow think we're righteous and then another group divides off that group that thought they were righteous. It's like none of it fits the pattern, you know. It doesn't, it doesn't lay this foundation like you're pointing out that the heart has to change first and, and we get it backwards. We think, hey, well, we're called, we're going to build this city. It's like how do, you, how do you do that unless you are one with God? Yeah, and, and to be fair, there was this man that was called from God to go and preach, and so strong was his preaching. And like you said, he, he was slow to speak. He stuttered. He was so strong in speaking the plain word of God that people's 
rivers change the course. That just gives us a great word picture of how powerful the word of God was. And people's hearts did start to change. And people that didn't want anything to do with God did fear so much that they were removed and went away. But it says there were wars and bloodsheds. So there was battle and there was bad things happening. And in the midst of that, the Lord came and dwelt with his people. And they dwelt in righteousness. That that precedes being called Zion because they were of one heart, one mind, and dwelt in righteousness, and there was no poor among them. And as you said, yeah, all that was established first. And then a city was built called Zion, even Zion. Yeah. So, yeah, let's, you know, you look around everywhere and it's like, there's, there's poor among us. There's division among us. There's a, well, you got what you deserve because you haven't done this. It's like all that attitude of the heart had to change for us. And it's like, I hate to say it, but I think any other conversation is just useless talk about Zion because we're kidding ourselves Yeah, if we aren't that people. Right? Yeah, the, uh, organizing and, and restructuring and all of those things uh, really don't even need to talk about that until – we're, we've repented and really have a heart for the Lord. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we talk about the church being in order and it's like, because we have all these structures of priesthood and you go back to like a go ye and teach series, for example, where it's shown as these little blocks of the church, the, the foundation of the building in the picture. And it's like, you know, the church isn't restored just because you have priesthood offices that now you can point out, Oh, these were in the Bible. Now we have them too. The church is restored when everything you're describing is in the forefront of our thinking that we love our neighbors as ourselves, that we would not tolerate poor among us. You know, that's that's when the church is restored. Well, I like Enoch's attitude. Uh, it must have been the most wonderful thing. And he seems almost giddy. In 3B it says, It came to pass, Enoch talked with the Lord, and he said, under the Lord, surely Zion shall dwell in safety forever. I mean, it must have been like this is awesome. We've arrived. This is, this is going to be forever. And the Lord said, "Well, Zion, I've blessed, but the residue of the people I've cursed." And, and then He shows Enoch all kinds of things. It says the Lord showed unto Enoch all the inhabitants of the earth, and he beheld, and lo, Zion in the process of time was taken up into heaven. There's so many more souls to be born and to experience an opposition in all things that that here at the very beginning of uh, this set-apart time on the earth of four or 6,000 years, this is just the very beginning. And Enoch said, surely this will be forever. And now it was taken away. Uh, and the Lord said unto Enoch, Behold the residue of the people, which are the sons of Adam, and they're a mixture of the seed of Adam and Cain, and Zion was taken up into heaven. And then, you know, Enoch goes on to see um, basically all things, that Satan has a chain over the earth, and the whole earth is veiled in darkness. And and so we go on. But that's that's the... That's the beginning of a concept of Zion. And we gravitate towards that in the restoration because that that's new to us. I mean that's that's unique to us. Other other scriptures don't have that. Well, and I, I think we've talked about it many podcasts back, but in Ethiopia there was a document that was held in 
high spiritual esteem called the Kebra Nagast. And, and this document mentions this guy Enoch. I had something on Restored Gospel that compares this document that was found in Africa from you know several hundred years B.C. to this account uh, in, in Joseph Smith's writing. And I'm, I don't know, I'm sure someone maybe will say, oh, well, he must have had access to this. I doubt Palmyra Library was carrying periodicals from Ethiopia from times B.C., but who knows, could be wrong. But anyhow, this uh, account is discovered. I won't, I won't go through it. That's, that reads almost just like this. So, um, you know, either, who knows, I think it all just came by inspiration, but um, it seems to give a, a true history of something that in the King James and other versions of the Bible, we only get a sentence. It just simply says, you know, Enoch walked with God and something about Zion has fled, you know, like Zion is gone. And so from that, um, we have a whole lot more information here in this account. And Enoch sees the flood, and he sees all of these people that that are wicked and don't turn to the Lord perish. And this is what God says about those people. I will shut them up. A prison have I prepared for them. They shall perish in the floods. And that which I have chosen has pleaded, bef- has pleaded before my face. Wherefore, he suffers for their sins inasmuch as they will repent in the day that my chosen shall return unto me, and until that day they shall be in torment. So what does that tell you? We, we read earlier about that they'll suffer the fiery indignation of his wrath, and we may think that it means you go away and you burn forever in hell, but there is definitely a place of torment, a terrible place, and, and for thousands of years. But when Jesus, the chosen, he says the chosen, talking about Jesus, he suffers for their sins, and as inasmuch as they'll repent in that day, that my chosen shall return unto me, and until that day they shall be in torment. So, so what does that mean? In inasmuch as they, so you you have to define the they. Well, right? they, the ones that suffered in the flood, the ones that were killed, the, that suffered the fiery indignation of the wrath of God, the evil ones that He wept over. They have a ability to repent. Now, how can you repent if you go off and, and are, are just burning somewhere unless something is moving upon you to give you more light and truth to respond to? Yeah, so this ties back in with our conversations regarding, I think, the prison house and its purpose. Uh, th- those who perish in the flood, you know, this uh, goes, it starts here in Enoch's account, and then it says, he he's seeing the future and he sees Jesus die on the cross. And then it says like, and if you take it back to Genesis seven sixty three, or I guess you can read it here in section 36, he hears a loud voice. The heavens were veiled and all the creations of God mourned. This is at the time of Jesus death. So that's the, till my chosen shall do, you know what you just read and the earth groaned, the rocks rent and the saints arose and were crowned at the right hand of the son of man with crowns of glory. And this, this is what Jesus has said, and the scriptures have said all along, that Jesus is the first fruits to rise. In other words, he was the first to become resurrected, even though countless millions of people had died before them. These ones in the flood apparently all went to the prison house. There was no righteous other than Nephi, Noah's rather family worth saving. But he sees these be, who have been in this prison, and the next verse says, you know, so he sees Jesus arise, he sees 
these good people arise, get resurrected at the time of Jesus' resurrection. And then he says, and as many of the spirits as were in prison came forth and stood on the right hand, the remainder reserved in chains of darkness until the great day. So he's talking about these people who from the time of Noah, for instance, all the way down to Jesus' death and resurrection had been in this prison house. But then the beautiful thing is they came forth, many of those come forth and stand also on the right hand of God where these, where the saints already were. Now these people out of prison get the same judgment and they've repented, but that yet the remainder reserved in chains of darkness until the judgment of the great day, those who wouldn't repent. But that's the, that's the pattern that we've talked about when we discussed section 76, for instance, you know, I think Joseph's term for them was the terrestrial. In other words, those who hadn't been in heaven and experienced God's power come forth and live in the resurrection. You know, they're resurrected. Um, it all seems to fit that pattern anyhow. Well, yeah, I'm, now I'm kind of lost. We jumped ahead because it talks about a new Jerusalem, which is another term that that I wanted to flesh out because we talk about well, 12G says, a holy city, my people may gird up their loins and be looking forth for the time of my coming. For oh, you, their- yeah, you jumped way ahead. Okay, you're 12G. All right. Well, yeah, I think, are you in Genesis or are you in? Oh, I was just, I was, I had Genesis up already. I was looking at it there, but. Gotcha. Yeah, okay, no problem. There shall be my tabernacle. It shall be called Zion, a new Jerusalem. Yeah, so this comes from the inspired version and this account from the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, I, I just want to throw something out here that, I think, um, I think it's true, but I'll just say I think it's probably my. I, I'll just say it could be my opinion too. This this is a place where Zion and the New Jerusalem are coupled together in the same verse, but Zion there there's a New Jerusalem physically to be built on this land as a city, just like we talked about Enoch's building the city after they're of one heart and one mind. But there's a, a new Jerusalem spiritually, which we equate with this city Zion that was taken up into heaven. So there's like a spiritual aspect of new Jerusalem. There's a physical aspect. The physical happens here on earth, the spiritual ha- first, and then later in a day to come, the new Jerusalem comes down, which we call Zion, out of heaven. But here's my point. I think when we talk about Zion coming down out of heaven, it's not just limited to Enoch City, yeah, that's part of it, but it's there's a greater definition of Zion coming to earth, which means all of heaven, like all of God's power and all of his glory come to earth, and the heavens and earth, which have been separate now, become one, if that makes sense. So so when it talks about Zion coming back or, or the new Jerusalem coming back, like in the end of Revelation, the last chapter says, hey, I saw the holy city coming down from God out of heaven. It's, it's not just, and this is where I could be wrong, but I think it's not just because Enoch City was taken back, and Enoch City specifically is the, the thing that comes down from heaven. I think it means the whole of heaven comes out of heaven. Like you know, it, It's just a greater definition of saying the whole power of God was with man and, and dwelt, you know, and they became one. But you know, I, I know I know it reads this way, but I just think the meaning's got to be even greater than what words can describe when it talks about uh, Zion coming down out of heaven. You know, we I know I don't know if that makes sense. I just think it, it literally is describing not just a single city coming back in a sense. I just think it's a greater meaning of the whole of God and everything that everything that's part of Him 
that now humanity gets to experience. Yeah, and I think that's a great distinction because the the former, the city coming back down, I, I guess in my mind, maybe that's not for other people. I've, I picture like this holy city coming down and, and kind of mingling with this place in the middle of the United States of Zion, and it's this just this righteous city. But I, I like what you just said. It's, it's all of the powers of heaven and righteousness uh, returning to the earth. But perhaps something takes place before then, and that's mm. the millennial reign where yeah, where almost like we're back for that process where Jesus came down and dwelt with his people in Enoch's time that Christ comes back and then he works with his priesthood as in the parable of the olive tree and they go out and, and there's this growth from a core group of good people that know the Lord and, and of course will be of one heart and one mind and their desires that Christ is with them and he brings about that righteousness. Then they go out and that's where it talks about people coming up to learn of the ways and to, um, that there's, I think there's still evil and bloodshed as there was in times of Enoch city. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's beings that are celestial that have been in the presence of God. And then there's beings that are, uh, uh you know, maybe they died in the, in the days of Noah or, or have died and are in the prison house. They come forth, but they're still learning to be done. But this this big, huge end that we look forward to, this righteousness of heaven coming down, perhaps, perhaps that isn't at the beginning of the millennial reign. I don't know. Well, so, and we won't get this resolved in this podcast. So I guess, uh, and, and again, you're, you're hearing two guys who like to talk about scripture, trying to make sense of things. And this, this could be some of the most, I mean, I can't say it's some of the most profound scripture. It's some of the most, uh, thought provoking scripture. And we don't always know that we have the complete story with what we have. I mean, the most profound scripture is just how is it that God loved us so much that he came down into this world? You know, that's a question I can't answer either. We just have to accept it. But I'm going to throw this out. There's a, to me, it may just be a misapplication of words. Let me just say it. Right here, if we're reading in the Doctrine and Covenants 13B, 13A and B, we read this well, it was 12G, where we said, it shall be called Zion and New Jerusalem. That term New Jerusalem in this application says, then Enoch, you'll meet, you and your city will meet them there, receive us into our bosom, fall on the necks, all the kissing, and there shall be my abode, and it shall be Zion, which shall come forth out of all the creations which I have made. And for the space of a thousand years shall the earth rest. Now this is, This is the conflict that I haven't figured out in my mind, and I'm just going to say this might be a cliffhanger because we're not going to get it all resolved. In this account that basically came through Joseph Smith, it describes this Enoch City, the New Jerusalem, coming down at the beginning of the millennium. By this, because we get this, for the space of a thousand years shall the earth rest. Well, in the Book of Mormon, we also read when this... Jacob, remnant in this land that builds a city and they're righteous. It's called the New Jerusalem physically. And then Jesus says, and then shall the powers of heaven come down and I will be in your midst. This is 3 Nephi 10. That's a popular go-to scripture for us. 
and then shall the work commence or begin when this word goes out. And and this is this beginning of this millennium, maybe where uh, where like you pointed out in Jacob, the 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 better fruit grows, the bad fruits being taken away, and eventually it's all good fruit. And then that implies then when the end comes, when evil again comes in my vineyard and it's burn of fire. That all applies to like premillennium or millennium, right? The masters working with the people, just like in Third Nephi ten. Here's the problem. When we read about the New Jerusalem in the Book of Mormon, in Ether's account, that says it differently. And it says, there shall be a new heaven and a new earth, and then cometh the New Jerusalem. And I'm going to read from Ether 6, 8, 9, and 10. And I'm jumping ahead. I know we're going to come back and fill in some of these details, but this is why this is why I think I mean, the language of this is important. So Ether 6 says, Wherefore the remnant of the house of Joseph shall be built up on this land, it shall be a land of their inheritance. They shall build up a holy city unto the Lord, and, and that's called in the previous verses the New Jerusalem. Um, and they shall no more be confounded until the end come when the earth shall pass away. And there shall be a new heaven and a new earth, and they shall be like unto the old, save the old have passed away and all things become new. And now verse 10, so we just, 9 says a new heaven, new earth, and then 10 says, and then cometh the new Jerusalem, and blessed are they which dwell therein. And that's talking about the the spiritual, because it says, for it is they whose garments are made white through the blood of the Lamb, and they are they which are numbered among the remnant of Joseph, which are of the house of Israel. Um I, I don't know if I don't know if this is referring to the New Jerusalem spiritually because it says their garments are made white. You know if that refers to like after final judgment because in Revelation I'm, I, I'm throwing this out because it sounds to me like where it says there'll be a new heavens, new earth, and then it says and then cometh the New Jerusalem. Is that chronologically after the new heavens and earth, um, or like the the other one that puzzles me? is when we read in Revelation and Revelation 20 and 21, 20 takes us up through the millennium and the final judgment. <clears throat> and then in 21, John says, hey, there was a new heaven, a new earth, and then I see this city of God coming down from God, out of heaven, and he calls it the New Jerusalem. And in fact, that's the only place in the New Testament where New Jerusalem is used, uh, which I, that was kind of a shocker to me. I didn't realize that. But if you if you look it up, this is John's writings, and it's the only only time in the uh, like I said that we read these terms New Jerusalem. It's in Revelations three and Revelation three and Revelation twenty one, and and so he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God shall wipe away all the tears from their eyes. There will be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Well, And I want to explain, this is why I think, I mean, Again, I don't know that I understand the definitions well enough, but this description of the millennium 
tells us that even in the end of the millennium, evil comes forth again when Satan's let loose. I mean, I think we all agree that Satan's going to be let loose. But mm-hmm. if Satan's let, let loose and Satan is able to live for a short season, and it says, and men begin to deny their God again, right? Or in the parable of Zenos, we read, evil fruit comes into the vineyard again. That lets me know, well, there would be things like pain and suffering and crying somewhere in the world, right? So when Revelation 21 says, hey, God's going to wipe their eyes their tears, there's no more death or sorrow or crying. That has to be even after the end of the millennium, right? Because at the end of the millennium, it sounds like, you know, things still aren't perfect. But when heaven comes back to earth, it sounds like to me it comes to this new heaven and new earth where there is no room ever again for unrighteousness. And so you kind of see where I'm going. I'm like, I'm trying to figure out then this revelation when John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. This describes it as something after the millennium. So when Enoch City comes back, if we're trying to say, you know, Enoch City comes back, is that the thing that comes at the beginning of the millennium? But it's not really the new Jerusalem. You know, I'm trying to I'm trying to make all the scriptures make sense, and I don't know if I if I can. Well, the, if we think about why why is it even important to talk about this? Because uh, from my perspective, it's important. Because I still I think there's a, a culture and a message being preached that that we still should be focused on trying to to buy up land and look at building uh, building up independence and building a righteous city and taking this task among ourselves as and trying to unify as a church and trying to organize, and, and honestly, I don't know how much of that culture is still left. There's probably some. I, I still hear those messages being preached. Um, and and so why is it important to think about that? Because if that's not the process, if that's not where our hope lies, we're continually substituting our hope again and again and again for doing something when really what we should be doing is being changed and, and focusing on our relationship with our creator and allowing him to to lead us into that um, and maybe get out of the driver's seat a little bit more and we're still trying to drive the bus way too much. And I don't know. That's why I, I see this is important because we're, we're almost there, but I, I want to finish with the timeline next time and then talk about um, some of the ways Zion is used in our history and in the Doctrine and Covenants and then see if we really, can we really bring that into today and and still follow those things or was that word being used uh, in maybe a different way in that time but, but not to guide how we proceed here in the last days. Yeah. How if much, that makes sense. How much time do we have? No, left? we're done. No, we're done. All right. We're well, done. so the next time, and I know this is kind of a cliffhanger, I, the, the Book of Mormon lays out so well the, the things that we don't answer in our own conversations. And I, and I can't wait to get to that because it tells us how we're going to walk each other home. <laughs> well, that was quick. You caught me off guard. <laughs> caught you off guard. All right. <laughs> <laughs>